The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. A very good afternoon to you. It is the 18th of July, 2022. It is Nelson Mandela Day. We celebrate Nelson Mandela's birthday. He was born on this day in 1918 he has been dead for nine years now it's hard to believe that uh, the great leader left us after such a long time of, of 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 memories he's somebody who dedicated 67 years of service and today most people in south africa tend to celebrate that 67 minutes by doing something symbolic of the 67 minutes or the number 67 in commemoration of nelson mandela's life we joined in a couple of minutes by Professor Gerard Labuskakni to chat about his latest book um, in the Profiler Diary series, and it stands to be a, a very interesting conversation. Um, if you'd like to contact us during the show, you're more than welcome to SMS us on 34519 or tweet us at HiFM. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on HiFM. I'm honored to be joined live in studio today by Gerard Labuskakni. And before we get started, I have to read his bio because it's, it's one of the more impressive bios in South Africa. Prefer, Professor Gerard Labuskakni, PhD, is currently a director of LNS Threat Management, South Africa's first sole purpose threat assessment and management company, which focuses on behavioral analysis of violence, extortion, and threats. Before taking up this position in 2016, he was the section head of the South African Police Services Investigative Psychology Section, or IPS, for 14 and a half years, where he resigned at the rank of brigadier. The section is also the only unit with a mandate to compile offender profiles for the police service in South Africa. The IPS is the South African Police Service's equivalent of the very famous behavioral analysis unit of the FBI. Gerard is a clinical psychologist with the Health Professions Council of South Africa and the British Psychological Society, as well as a criminologist and an advocate of the High Court. He's also the founder president of the African Association of Threat Assessment Professionals and one of only two U.S. Association of Threat Assessment Professionals certified threat managers that are in Africa. That is exceptionally impressive. And, and as always, it's great to have you in studio. Welcome, Gerard. Thanks for having me again. Gerard, your first installment of Profiler Diaries was from case files of your your time as a as a police psychologist, mm-hmm. and it gave us insight what it means to be a profiler in what we could consider um, one of the world's busiest profiling units. Let's talk about that. Let's go back to your days mm-hmm. uh, in that unit. What was a common day? Sure, I don't know if there was such a thing as a common day. You know, because we work with violent crime, you never know when they're going to happen. So you could be contact, you could be sitting in the office thinking you're going to spend the day working on a report, uh, catching up on admin, and then be called out to a crime scene somewhere within reachable distance of where we were based in Pretoria, or get a call to come from a detective and say, please, can you come and assist? You know, we would be in court some days. So there really wasn't a common day. It spanned anything from suddenly a crime scene, autopsy, court, writing reports. Perhaps I've had to add them up together. The majority of the days were in the office working on something, trying to finalize a profile or a report, but it was, could be, as I said, very unpredictable. If we look at the specialized units within SAPS, we know a lot of specialized units were closed. Mm-hmm. Did this unit, was this unit saved? Is it still in existence? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it was back in Jackie Salibia's day. I think it was 
was at the end, towards the end of 2006, September, October 2006, where he suddenly shut down a whole range of specialized units in the, that existed in the police for many years and any task teams that were put together that were dealing with specific individual cases. So that was quite devastating. Um, we fell at that time under the serious and violent crime head office. So that was shut down, but our unit was just basically relocated directly to under the head of the detective service. And then after about a year or so, we were relocated into the forensics division. So our unit has always existed uh, and survived all the cullings and we're just moved around. And actually, is, is in terms of human resources, bigger than it's ever been. Presently? Yeah. So... Let's talk about that. South Africa is an inherently violent society, and I want to get to, to why it's so violent just now. When you say it's now the biggest it has been, would you say it's correctly capacitated, or are we of such a violent nature that we would need more members? I would definitely say if we wanted to be reaching every case that fell within our mandate where we could assist, then we'd have to be far bigger. So the, the it's, although we're the biggest we've ever been, well, let me, let me put it this way. There's kind of two main groups of people in the unit. Your people who I would regard as your profilers, psychologists, and then you'd have your, what I call your major case management experts. In other words, those are detectives with a lot of experience in violent crime, sexual crime. And we often worked paired up together. So we were called into a case. The detective would come along with his immense background of how these investigations should work and my background, for example, with more on the profile and psychological side. And then we work together to assist that detective with that particular case. And that's also how the FBI does it. They have major case management specialists, and then you have your profilers. So what's happened over the years is that the profilers and the psychologists have gotten less and less. The, the bigger growth has been with your detectives, with the, you know, your, your major case management expert detectives, which is a very vital part because often what we would find is you would just find a detective who just didn't know how to investigate this case properly. You didn't necessarily need the profiler giving input, but you definitely needed the detective giving that input to that, that detective who's not been encountering these kind of cases before or just aren't getting good supervision from their seniors. So while the detective side expanded, unfortunately, the, 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 the people who I would regard as profilers, there's probably one left. And, and a couple of psychologists who I wouldn't yet regard as profilers. So grown in some ways, but shrunk in other ways. That's, that's frustrating to hear that there's perhaps one mm. fully qualified profiler considering the levels of violence. Mm. Is South Africa, in terms of international standards, do we, do we have, I don't know how to put this politely, do we have what would be expected in, in, in respect of serial killers? Or are we a country where we have... Too many serial killers. Mm. I, I, I don't know how best to put yeah, that question. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm trying to yeah. say? So, you know, it's often been said that South Africa is sort of in the top three, you know, so I think Russian, American, South Africa, when it comes to numbers of, of serial murderers. The problem with that is, you know, not all countries keep accurate records. Um, you know, even the United States, it's not as if there's one database where these cases all get reported to. It's not as if the FBI gets involved in all serial cases in the United States. They have to be invited into an investigation. So here in South Africa, because we had our unit which worked nationally and we stuck our nose into any serial murder case, if we heard about it through a colleague, we heard about it in the news, or we were approached by a detective, we would get involved. So we had relatively accurate stats, and we have a national DNA database, which again was identifying murder cases, linking them for us. So we had various ways which we could accurately get some statistics. Whereas other countries don't necessarily have that. They don't have a centralized unit like us. They don't have a centralized DNA database. Even in the United States, they don't have a centralized database where all DNA gets put onto. 
you know, this police station would use this private company for their DNA processing. There is CODIS in, in the U.S., which is a voluntary database where you can submit your police station's DNA to that database. It's not compulsory. So, again, we might be the victim of our success in terms of how we manage serials that makes our numbers look higher than other people's numbers. Having said that, I do think we probably do have quite a number more than a lot of average countries do. So that leads me to my next question. Thank you for answering because that's what I was wanting to understand. Do we have more per capita than what would be expected if we had to if we had to compare ourselves to other emerging economies or other similar type countries? Your answer to that is yes. Mm. Why? I don't know. I wish I did. Uh, I would be a rich man if I did know that answer that question. Uh, we have a high violent crime rate and murder rate, so perhaps that automatically will pull up your numbers of serials. But at the same time, I often say, I don't know what makes someone a serial, but I do know that if we don't catch them after the first one, we allow them to become serials. So I often say that the more serial rapes, serial murders you have in your country, it's actually a commentary on the quality of your policing. Because if you caught people, if I said, if you were solving 75, 80% of your murders, you wouldn't give them a chance to become serials, would you? Because they would be sitting in jail for hopefully a very long period of time after their first murder or their first rape. So... I think it's a combination of that. Our law enforcement is not as what it was, say, 20, 30 years ago even. And we probably just have a high crime murder rate, which means we'll probably automatically have higher numbers of serials in general. But again, I mean, it's, it's difficult to answer because you look at countries like Botswana, our neighbors, they don't have a violent crime rate near of what we have. So I don't know why us, we do. I don't know. <laughs> We're in conversation with Profiler and author, Professor Gerard Labuskakhni. We're going to pick up the conversation straight after this. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. We're in conversation with Professor Gerard Labuskakhni about his latest book, The Profiler Diaries 2, From Crime Scene to Courtroom. And congratulations, the first installment um, of The Profile Diaries actually was a bestseller, not once, not twice, but three times over, um, according to stats. So that must have been a very satisfactory feeling. Yeah, look, I mean, it's, it's very nerve-wracking. I think for any author, no matter what book you are writing, whether or not it'll sell to anybody, I think it's more nerve-wracking when it's, it's like this, it's a diary. It's a, bit of, it's a bit of your life that you're talking about. And imagine if nobody finds it interesting. So I was just happy when it kind of reached the, you know, the, the publishers always say in South Africa, if a book sells 2,000 copies, that's good. It was a worthwhile exercise for them. And I think we're standing on about 10,000. Yeah, you're over the 10,000 so, mark. <laughs> so very happy. And that kind of made me feel comfortable about obviously, you know, doing a second one when they asked. So it is great. And, I, I'm, you know, overall, the, 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 the feedback's been positive. I think there was one or two people who said this was a terrible book. There's no new insights. The person clearly has no interest in this thing. And I think that was probably someone whose family member I arrested somewhere along the line. <laughs> but, yeah. So, yeah, I really appreciate people's uh, interest in the book. So one goes to Netflix, one goes to Showmax or any television channel for that matter. And there will invariably be a program on cold cases. There will be a yeah. program on serial killers. And there's a morbid fascination with this this very dark part of our society. It's, it makes up such a minuscule percentage of the population, the people that commit these crimes. Why do you think there's such an interest in it from the public side? I think it's because it's so weird that such a, a person that could look so normal could literally be your next door neighbor because they are always somebody's next door neighbor who has a normal life, you know, goes to work, does whatever they have to do that everybody else does and is committing such horrific types of offenses. And I think that's 
scary because that is, you know, hijackings, you kind of maybe can figure out how to avoid other types of crimes. You can, you know, avoid that area or I don't don't get into that kind of occupation because it's high risk. But this you can't because it could literally be your neighbor. I think that's kind of this fascination, this morbid fascination that it's the people are so normal. Um, You know, it would be great if serial murderers were robbing, stealing, cheating, lying, because you'd probably know to avoid them anyway from that kind of behavior. But they're not. Um, and I'm busy actually reading a book by um, the daughter of the BTK serial murderer, Dennis Rader, in, in, in Wichita, in the U.S., who, you know, he went silent after killing, brutally killing families and torturing them, tying them up, um, children. Uh, but he was a family man who, you know, went to church, was a deacon in the church. Um, you know, he had a daughter that he treated the same way we all, you know, who love and treat, love our daughters. And she wrote this book about how it was so difficult to understand that her dad, who was this loving 99.9% of them normal guy, in the same time was doing these horrific things. Um, and I think that's what really scares people. And I think also there isn't a, a classic definition of what you, to look out for, the characteristics, yeah. because we were always thought them to be the quiet, stay-at-home, non-married, non-social type. But then you see somebody like Ted Bundy, mm-hmm. who who didn't have those characteristics. He was outgoing. He was good-looking. He was attractive to women. So you can't really box a serial. No, there's no nice, clear background pattern pathway that they all follow, warning signs. You know, we've had policemen who've been serial murderers. We've had married people who've been serial murderers. We've had DJs, like in this in the book, you know, uh, who are serial murderers. We've had, it's just, there's no consistent, this is what they look like, you know, personality-wise, biographic-wise, etc. Let's talk about serial fraudsters. <laughs> because we're talking about violent criminals in terms of, of profiling. We always hear about the rapist and the murderer. But can we also profile people that are that are that get a high off ripping others off? Has there ever been a type of study into serial fraudsters or the type of personality traits that we find among scammers? I'm sure there has been. You know, obviously in our units, we 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 just worked with the violent crime and sexual crime stuff. But I would imagine by now, insurance companies, banks, etc., would have probably funded that kind of research to determine how can they avoid these people from defrauding them, their institutions. I mean, I remember what was quite a challenge in the police. Whenever they heard the word serial, they said, this is for you guys. So serial housebreaker. And we go, no, 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 we don't deal with anything serial. Because you get, as you say, you get serial fraudsters, you get serial this, con men, that, the other. The word serial doesn't mean it's in our mandate. What makes it in our mandate is a psychological motive behind the crime, which is more typically your your violent crime and sexual crime types of stuff. But so, yeah, I'm sure that there is out there some people who've done this sort of blue, white, white collar criminal type of research to try and identify more clearly those type of. And I see it in, in the lot of the work we do with banks now where they're looking for the insider threat, the guy that's going to internally defraud the bank of a lot of money. Can we identify patterns of behavior in terms of their occupational behavior, their online computer behavior at work, their leave patterns to see, is there something that can help us red flag certain people who might be committing, you know, embezzlement of funds that they have access to? During the break earlier, we we, we chatted briefly about the fact that South Africa seems to have a problem with violence, um, be it rape, be it assault with with, with intent to to commit grievous bodily harm, and of course with murder. And we were trying to figure out why this is. Mm. What was your 
was there any defining factor that you discovered while you were profiling for the police? Look, I mean, what we definitely saw was that a lot of our serial murderers came from lower socioeconomic groups, people who were doing odd jobs, peace jobs, as they refer to it, not sort of your highly successful financial people. That was a common theme we saw. And and they would approach their victims targeting also, uh, you know, economically vulnerable people, people who didn't have jobs, ladies, or people who had you know, me, sort of meager jobs and were looking for to improve their lives. And they would typically say, are you not looking for a job? Uh, I've got this job. It's as a cashier. It's as a helper. It's as whatever the, you know, con story was to lure these desperate people with them. So definitely in South Africa, the economics play a role in how they commit their crime. And we also see that our offenders come from that sort of lower, typically the lower socioeconomic groups themselves. And I think that is perhaps something that's unique compared to our uh, sort of American counterparts who don't s- who seem to tend to have more fixed occupations. And also because our guys don't have uh, uh, regular incomes, they don't have vehicles. So they have to lure the victim with that con story, walk with them into the felt where they eventually go and commit their crime. It's, it really is fascinating. It's, it's actually devastating when one thinks about it. And more so now when one looks at the state of our policing. There's a person that, that you quote in the book, um, Detective Hanacom, mm, and yeah. he says, there's no such thing as locking the door at your office at four o'clock, going home and having another life there. This follows you because there's always this worry. My worry is that if this happens to me one day, is there someone who's going to do enough to bring peace of mind to my family? That is what I base my work on, to give peace of mind to the family. Mm. Um, and that, that's, that you attribute to Detective Warrant Officer Dion Hanacom. Do we still have detectives like this? This is the question everybody asks. If I speak from my experience, there is the sort of age group of detectives who are, say, mid-40s, 50s, that are probably going to retire in the next five to ten years. And that's going to be a massive chunk of really amazing people who are not going to be there anymore. And I don't see that we have enough people coming up, filling those spaces that are going. So we'll always have great detectives and enthusiastic and honest, moral, wonderful people joining the police. But I don't see it at the rate of us filling up the ones that we're going to be losing in the next five to ten years. Um, And that's really, really what worries me. And partly because of that, you know, for a new detective who's done his training course, joined, got into a detective unit, that's not the end of it. That's the start of your career. You know, you then have to be mentored by a really great detective, your group captain or whoever your, 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 your commander is in that group of detectives who are mentoring you into being a wonderful detective. So you might be very keen and enthusiastic, but you're not getting that mentoring. You're not going to reach what we would like you to reach. And unfortunately, it just feels like that sort of group captain level of people, the group commander level is, is not also as strong as it used to be. So even if you have that enthusiastic person joining, they aren't going to necessarily be guided to make them a wonderful detective. I don't want to make this controversial and put you um, on the spot, but do you think perhaps with the remilitarization of the police force, having these berate members, I'm a Beretta, the TRTs, mm. having this more um, paramilitary-style force to combat supposedly contact crimes, cash in transit, that type of thing, that we've lost sight of um, the empowerment that's required at detective level? Look, I mean... I think uh, uh, policing is also, there's a lot of politics in it. You know, people want to show they're doing the right thing so that we're going to employ 10,000 new, de- new new police members. That means nothing if they haven't chosen the right 10,000 people and haven't given them great training and haven't had someone mentoring them. Then it is all just talk. And 
I do often feel that the detective service was the one area where perhaps was, was, was forgotten to a large degree. If you're not able to catch and put people in, in jail, then people are not going to fear the, the, the law. If you don't think you're going to get caught and punished and stuck in jail, and you, you can have whatever laws you want. You could have the Minimum Sentence Act, which gives people X, X Y, Z sentence for whatever acts. But if you don't catch in and convicting, it means absolutely nothing. And, and that's really where your detective service is so important. So, yes, crime prevention, people driving around, etc. But crime will always happen. And the detectives are the one that investigate, catch, gather the evidence to make sure we can get a conviction in court. If, that, if that's not working properly, nothing that you say or do matters, really. So now with state capture, PPE fraud, tender fraud, and this emphasis on prosecuting these type of criminals, specialized units have now had to second their experienced mm -hmm. members. Are we seeing more and more reliance on station detectives? And is there still a skill set at station mm. level to investigate a serial killer or a serial rapist? So, I mean, we saw that when, as I said earlier, Jackie Silliby shut down a lot of specialized units like your serious and violent crime units back in 2006. They reopened some of them, like the child protection units in the, in the family violence child protection units did reopen. So some of them have kind of come back. But a lot of stuff at the, from that time until now was pushed down onto the station level, which is you often find they don't have the same resources. You know, a station detective, I think nowadays probably easily has 100 dockets on his table. Um, he's sharing a car with three or four other detectives. So they don't have the resources. So if you're taking those more serious crimes and letting them be devolved down to station level, you're not going to get the same result. And why those serious and violent crime units, and before them the old murder and robbery units were so successful, is because you had a group of detectives. A crime occurred, a murder, that standby group of 10, 15 people would all go out to their crime scene and work that crime for the first 24 hours. It would be, yes, the responsibility of one of those detectives would be the docket carrier. But he was able to use those other 10 12, 13 members on his group to task them to do various things in that initial you know, 48 hours that they speak of. And that's why they were very successful, well, besides the fact that you pulled in your top-notch detectives into those units. You can't expect a lone station detective who's on standby to have the same results. No matter how good they are, they're not going to get the same results because they don't have the same resources available to them. And that's really kind of one of the things. I mean, and you see it with murder and unnatural death cases. We don't have a homicide unit in South Africa. We can never understand why not. But you'll have two or three detectives at a police station whose job it is to deal with any unnatural deaths. And that's from a suicide to a car accident to someone falling off the roof to a murder, etc. But again, it's two or three detectives at a station. And they're not working as a team because they're, you know, they have different standby times, etc. Um, and again, we're leaving those detectives with 20, 30, 40 cases on their table. I mean, my colleagues overseas who, look, who deal with homicide cases look at that and go, but how do you expect success? <laughs> you know, we'll have one detective with a group of 20 people helping him, and that will be the case they will have for maybe, you know, the, the next week or two. And, and you can't really expect success that we would like with that, those kind of stats. Would your unit have got involved with terror profiling? There was a case a couple of years ago. It was on New Year's Eve. A vehicle pulled up in Melville, opened fire on some revelers outside a, 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 a pub called Poppies. They later shot at revelers at Mary Fitzgerald Square mm. and were recently arrested in an unrelated kidnapping case and then linked back to yeah. all of this. This sounds to me like something where you would require profiling. Yeah, so, so we did, as time went by, and I do believe they still do now, get, are starting to get more and more involved in counterterrorism cases. And that's actually been a common trend amongst profiling units throughout the world, that over the past 15 years, 
counterterrorism counter issues, risk assessments uh, on people who are becoming radicalized, uh, became a bigger and bigger area for profile. So that to the point where the, the, the behavioral analysis units of the FBI has a profile terrorism profiling unit in a, alongside this sort of child profiling, child crime unit as a, along, alongside of the serial murder unit. Um, and the threat assessment unit. So yeah, so that is the kind of things that more and more um, profilers started to do. And I was doing in the in the sort of the, about the year before I left, it really picked up. And that was fast. Those are fascinating cases. I mean, we just had so many amazing cases taking place in South Africa that a lot of people don't know about. And as you said, a lot of people didn't realize that that shooting many years ago actually was a terrorism case. It wasn't just some gang bangers, drunk people, uh, etc. It was linked to terrorism, as we saw with the Woolworths case. And I think it was 2018 where these incendiary devices were going off in Woolworth shops pretty much in Durban, that that was linked to terrorism. And as was the, the attacks, that I think that same year it, at the race course at the Durban July. And a lot of people are kind of oblivious to these things for, for various reasons. Um, and we had, uh, as of recently, um, Harry Knudsen convicted in the Middleburg High Court for trying to instigate in 2019 a massive violent uprising at police stations and military bases, uh, etc. And as I said, a lot of people don't even know about those cases. Tell us about the King of America. That, that's really a, a fascinating case. So that's obviously a ch the last chapter in the current book. And it was a, a man with mental health struggles who in 2013, when Nelson Mandela came to, to Africa and South Africa on a whistle-stop tour, he sent death threats to the consulate. Nothing really happened at that, that point, and Mandela was in and out the country. Barack Obama was in and out the country very quickly. But then he came back for Mandela's funeral at the end of 2013, and the same guy took that opportunity to again send death threats uh, to the consulate. But ultimately, his main goal is he had this delusional belief about South Africa, England, the United States going back under sort of the monarchy and becoming this powerhouse and the Queen's rulership of, of the Commonwealth is illegal because of the Bible speaking of kings, not queens, and she's the head of the English church. There's very sort of convoluted delusional theory. And, and for years, he'd been trying to get people's attention from MI5 and MI6 to, you know, leaders in the United States, uh, lawyers. And of course, everybody's recognizing that this guy is perhaps a bit unhinged and not responding, and he thought, how am I going to get people to listen to me? And he thought, well, if I make death threats, that'll get the attention of the authorities, and when they hear what I have to say, all will be forgiven. And, of course, that's not how it works. Um, and eventually he was arrested towards the end of 2013, and I had the opportunity to interview him, and, and actually a very nice guy who just unfortunately was experiencing sort of mental health challenges. And who thankfully, the treatment he received as a result of being made a state patient it really made a difference in his life, where I, I chatted to him a, a couple of months ago, and he's kind of got his life back on track. He's sort of back in society and, and carrying on. And he was quite happy that I, he said, I'm happy that you write the chapter, as long as you emphasize the fact that going for mental health help really does help. Does mental health play a, a large role in people that commit the type mm. of crimes we see in South Africa, especially the rape and the murder from a serial perspective? You know, we've, we've only had now history, one or two serial murderers who had confirmed mental illnesses. So definitely serial murder is not a product of mental illness. And the one of the two I actually speak about in my previous book, um, the Brighton Beach Axe murderer, Pindili and Chongwane, who had an established history of mental illness problems prior to the murders taking place. But the court found that those weren't the reason why he went out and chopped a few people with axes over a sort of a period of two weeks. So... No, it's 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 not the cause of serial murder. We know that because most of our people are found fit to stand trial and, and mentally sane. 
where it has happened that a couple have had mental health issues, those weren't linked, or in, at least in Chungwana's case, it was not linked to the cause of his murders, which is why he's now sitting in prison getting his treatment as opposed to sitting in a hospital like Stadquintain. So I'm not saying that these people are normal, but the cause of their, mental, of their crimes isn't mental illness. We're chatting to Professor Gerard Labuskakhni about his second book, The Profiler Diaries 2, From Crime Scene to Courtroom. We'll be back straight after this. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Chatting today to Gerard Labuskakhni about his latest book, The Profiler Diaries 2, From Crime Scene to Courtroom. Fascinating book. And what I like about it are the the actual examples you give. Now, one of the examples, which is quite interesting, is how a judge tried to sidestep around the referencing of a serial killer Mm. when a a, a specific advocate questioned that two murders were actually evidence Mm. of a serial murder. Mm. We don't actually have a charge for a serial killer, Mm. do we? Nope. And we sometimes don't get to charge them on all of them. We get to charge them on what we can prove. Mm. But when does it become a serial? So the, the kind of accepted definition now is when you have two separate murders, you are a serial murderer. So for years, there have been a big debate about the number. Is it five? Is it 10? Is it three? And academics tended to want a higher number for certainty, where law enforcement wanted a sh- smaller number that we can react quicker and get necessary resources in place. So in 2005, the FBI held a ser- serial murder symposium in San Antonio, Texas, where they invited law enforcement agencies from throughout the U.S. and the world and other experts, and I was very fortunate enough to be invited to attend that, to say, look, can we come to some consensus about certain key issues? And the outcome of that was a a, a document which is available on their website for people to read, um, where they said, right, the definition is going to be basically two separate murders. Now, you might have different motives for those murders. You might have the good old-fashioned Moses Atoli. It's about sex, power, etc., and he kills women. But it would also, though, include your organized crime hitman who goes out and kills people because he's getting paid to do it. He's also a serial murderer, but with a different kind of motive. And they had ended up with about, I think, five, six, seven, eight different types of motives, of which one is the good old-fashioned Ted Bundy, Moses Atola kind of, of serial murder that most of us are familiar with. Like, so, for example, Rosemary and Blovu, who was convicted, sure, was it this year or last year? Time flies. The cop. The cop from Tembisa who, you know, killed, had multiple family members murdered through a hitman after her taking out these massive life insurance policies, she physically killed only one of those people. But I said in court, yes, she, I said in, in the media that she's definitely a serial murderer. She just, her, her instrument was the hitman. But it was as a result of her drive and goal and et cetera that she got this person to go or these people to go and kill these various family members for money. It is a financially motivated uh, serial murderer. So we hear about these traits, um, narcissistic, mm. sociopath, psychopath, Everybody battles with the sociopath-psychopath definition, what the difference is between the two. Hopefully you can enlighten us. But somebody like Rosemary, would she have been a narcissist or was she a a serial killer purely because she wanted money? Mm. You know, you can't obviously separate the fact that she everybody she first took out the insurance policy for. So you have to accept that money was a strong motivator for her. You can't just sort of turn blind to that factor. But <clears throat> the fact that someone is able to kill not strangers, family members, or have them killed, you have to wonder about her own ability to feel for anybody else. Besides the fact that you're killing a human being, which most of us would be perhaps horrified by, you're killing people that you know, people that you have a history with, hopefully that, uh, that would, you know, 
close, kind to her in some way. So you have to get over that hurdle. So and and that getting over that hurdle makes me start to wonder around the issues of someone being a psychopath. So not all serial murderers are psychopaths, but her specific case that's definitely a question mark I have about her personality, because you're not even killing strangers that you could perhaps convince yourself it's okay to kill or separate yourself from emotionally. You're killing people in your immediate environment. Is psychopathy a mental disorder? Yes. So in terms of, um, you know, our our sort of diagnostic manuals, a psychopath is a diagnosis. It's similar to what we nowadays also refer to as antisocial personality disorder. That kind of replaced in one of the earlier editions of our diagnostic book, the DSM-IV, which is popularly used. We used to have the term psychopath in there, then it was replaced with the term antisocial personality, although the, 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 the diagnosis of psychopathy still exists as a diagnosis. And they overlap to a large degree. Um, they are very similar, there's subtle differences. So yes, to use either of those terms, you have to be a, to make that, that classification, you have to be sort of in South Africa, a psychiatrist or a psychologist. So one has to be very careful when you start talking about my ex is a psychopath. <laughs> you know, it is, it is technically a diagnostic term. An sociopath? We, we, we get told yeah. that's a psychopath that can function. Is that, is that, just, is that, is that just urban legend? What is the real yeah. definition? So it's, it's very similar. And I think because of the fact that a, the, the term psychopath is a diagnostic term, which means you sh- unless another mental health expert has made it, you shouldn't be repeating it because people will say to you, where are your qualifications to make that diagnosis? So um, I think partly because of that, the term sociopath kind of came alive. It's not a diagnostic term. So in the criminology world, you'll find they will more frequently use the term sociopath. There is a subtle difference, and they say that the sociopaths are more fixated on criminal behavior, where you can be a psychopath without ever having broken the law, but you break society's norms. You know, you're a liar, a cheater, you know, you cheat on your wife, you bullshit people, etc., but you haven't yet necessarily broken the law, whereas a sociopath tends to be someone who is a lawbreaker. So it's not a term that is very commonly used still. Um, and like I said, it's, it's predominantly, I think, came from the criminology world for them to be able to have a very similar term that they can use that isn't, they're not going to form the pitfall of it, people saying, but you're a criminologist, you can't make a diagnosis. We're seeing a lot of shootings at the moment. Now, South Africa is no stranger mm. to murder by firearm, but we're seeing a lot in respect of places of entertainment, taverns, shabines, mm. etc., do you think there's a pattern here, or do you think it's just coincidental that it's all happening at the same time? Look, I, I'm always a bit cautious when we have th- something that is statistically unusual happening all of a sudden a lot. So I think we're going to have to wait and see what the what hopefully the police investigation is going to determine. I don't think it's the same kind of shootings as we see with sad regularity in the United States, like Uvalde and at the schools, etc., those are more your sort of active shooter, disgruntled person with huge major psychological issues. I'm not saying necessarily diagnostic issues, but issues that to- make them go and target a specific venue and then try and kill as many people. This for me at this point, because it seems that there's multiple offenders in most instances, um, that it's probably more likely crime-related. Um, organized crime, gang-related, tavern wars, like we have with your taxi wars from time to time. So... We'll wait and see whether there's any links because it's kind of split out from various areas. Uh, hopefully the police investigation would cover that. But I think it's more likely that than the sort of American-style uh, mass shootings that we sadly see quite often. In closing, 14 and a half years at the police is a lifetime for somebody <laughs> that was involved in profiling. You've come out. You've got these incredible qualifications. You've written these books. 
what are you enjoying at the moment and what do you want to do mm. more of that you enjoy? So I, don't, I obviously don't do this this kind of work anymore. So I write about the things I don't do. Um, and that's also probably, probably why I am writing about them because I've got this sort of distance from them over the past sort of six years that I've been out the police. But what I really focus a lot more now on is predominantly working with corporates when there's a concern for the safety. You know, someone's made a threat, threat to the CEO or threat to an executive or threat to anybody in the organization. And the organization wants to know how concerned should we be and how do we deal with this to prevent something from happening. And that's what I really, really enjoy is that in all these, these cases in the books, when we got involved, the crime had occurred. We couldn't make someone come back to life. We couldn't take away the rape that a victim had experienced. But with what I focus on now, which is threat assessment and threat management, it's very much focused on the preventative. How do we pick up a problematic concern as early as possible, look at it, intervene, and deviate it that it doesn't take place? And that's very rewarding, that we can prevent people from being the victims of assaults, of, of murders, of you know, lethal stalking behavior, et cetera. And that's, that's fun and rewarding. And as I said, I focus more on the workplace environment. I do still get involved in, in court cases from time to time, um, sometimes on behalf of the NPA where I'm asked to assist, or sometimes on behalf of defense um, lawyers where they ask if I can perhaps do a sentencing report for court. So I do that sporadically, but the main focus is threat assessments and every now and then writing a book. And then you've got the the association, well, the African Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, I know it is AFITAP. Mm. What is the, the goals of this organization? Yes, as I said, you know, when I was in the police, I started to get involved more and more in threat assessment. When I left, I decided to start the threat assessment company. And I would often go to these conferences that associations in America and Europe would have for threat assessment. And they kept on saying, when you start in the African one, uh, and eventually we did with some great support from some corporates, um, and some, a lot of our board members are from corporates, to try and get the profession of threat assessment off the ground, that whether it's in the education environment, the workplace environment, domestic violence sort of scenarios, um, the terrorism scenario, helping c companies, schools, co corporates help identify when these problematic behaviors are developing and prevent them. And so spreading that word, and that's what AFITAP is about. Um, we have sort of webinars on every three weeks on various topics. We had one on workplace bullying last week. Uh, our next one is going to be on violent, violent fantasies and how that is influencing violent crime. And then, of course, our conference on the 21st and 22nd of November of this year in Melrose Arch at the Marriott, where we're having great experts from overseas and local speakers talking about dealing with anything from domestic violence in the workplace to terrorism in South Africa and how that's affecting corporates to uh, uh, stalking behavior, et cetera. And it's kind of getting people, whether you're a private investigator, policeman, psychologist, because this type of behavior spans a whole bunch of disciplines. You know, in a, in a company, it's your HR practitioners who might be dealing with, you know, um, staff on staff inappropriate behavior and trying to bring all these people together and say, let's think more consciously about these issues and how to prevent them and develop systems in your organizations that we can help keep people safe. If our listeners want to find out more about AFITAP, so the, the website is www.afatap.africa, because uh, obviously we're an African association. Um, my, my company website also deals with issues of as, as workplace violence, but that's where you'll find some email addresses. Um, we'll put up our next series of webinars that are coming up soon, um, where people can just, if they want to attend, they're welcome to attend um, and consider joining the association. Gerard, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Chad. Gerard Labuskakni is the author of the Profiler Diary series, 
Profiler Diaries 2 is currently out. It's from crime scene to courtroom. It's published by Penguin Books and it's available at all good bookstores. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I'll be back same time, same place uh, next week. I am anchoring the morning show this week uh, between now and Friday while Howard takes a well-deserved break. So you can tune in between 6 and 9 every day. But uh, Confidential Brief, same time, same place next week, Monday. Thank you so much for joining us.